From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line. Just give us a call at 205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack. Thank you very much. Oh! And back- oh! <laughs> yeah. well, I- I'm glad you're saying it like that, and I'm glad you're not oh! saying, oh, oh, oh. You know, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to say it in that tone. <laughs> but no, it's great being back at the Fathers of Mercy here in Kentucky and Auburn and here at the General at House, our main residence. And this following uh, two weeks of uh, Advent Parish Missions in California. So a shout out to those parishes of St. Joseph and the combined St. Nicholas and William in Los Altos. Modesto's was St. Joseph and Los Altos was the other combined parish family. So it's good to be back. And I had a few days with my family as well. But you're right about OO, uh, because today I want our springboard to be about the great O antiphons, which... Uh, Uh, I have a very particular fondness for because they mean so, so much. So I want to talk a little bit about their history and their meaning. We said a few weeks ago that there's six of them, and they count down, uh, excuse me, seven of them, and they count down uh, beginning with um, uh, the the 17th of December, which begins the nine-day Christmas countdown. And so the O antiphons are an ancient liturgical antiphon or response, which is what antiphon means, uh, sung or recited during the last seven days of Advent, that is, one each each day from December 17th through December 23rd as part of the Liturgy of the Hours, specifically during the evening canticle Magnificat of Mary. Uh, the Liturgy of the Hours is a scriptural liturgy which the Church prays throughout the 24-hour day with five to seven different prayer periods, depending on whether or not the community is active or contemplative. Uh, Vespers, or evening prayer, is the period in which we hear the O antiphons recited or sung during the final days of Advent as the beginning and ending antiphon to the Magnificat canticle. Uh, but remember, Although there's only seven running from the 17th through the 23rd proper, the next two days equal nine, right? Uh, The 24th and 25th. So we we have the antiphons during the wonderful nine-day countdown of Christmas, a time to do a a Christmas novena of your choice. There's many good ones out there on good Catholic websites. Maybe you want a shorter one uh, because of your work uh, duty and your work schedule. Maybe you want to take a longer one that includes scripture readings and whatnot, meditation time. There 
are out there, these Christmas novenas, and, there, and there's good ones. So the Oantiphons are comprised of various titles of Jesus Christ foretold in the Old Testament from the book of the prophet Isaiah regarding their composition into sacred hymnody. No one really knows the exact origin of the Oantiphons put to music, but Christians have been singing them since at least the 5th century, we know for a fact, historically. It is known, too, that the Roman philosopher Boethius mentions the Oantiphons and the text of his famous work, The Consolation of Philosophy. How about that? When heard, one might recognize some of the words because the O antiphons are the basis of the popular sacred hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, heard during the liturgical season of Advent and traditionally listed as the seventh and final O antiphon, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Again, each antiphon begins with a title of Jesus Christ taken from the Old Testament, specifically from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And if one does a little detective work to figure out what the various titles mean, Scripture provides many revealing clues. For example, December 17th, O Wisdom, the Latin is O Sapientia, coming forth from the mouth of the Mount High, reaching from one end to the other, mightily and sweetly ordering all things. Come and teach us the way of prudence, the cardinal of the cardinal virtues, right? Uh, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. And so, O Wisdom, O Sapienza, calls us to have that great cardinal virtue of prudence, which directs our life. December 18th, we have O Adonai, O Adonai, the leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai. Come and redeem us with an outstretched arm, the God who embraces, the God who loves. December 19th, we have O Root of Jesse, O Rodix Jesse, standing as a sign among the peoples. Before you, kings will shut their mouths. To you, the nations will make their prayer. Come and deliver us and delay no longer. Reminds me of when Christ tells Pontius Pilate, you would have no power if it did not come from above. Huh? Before you, kings will shut their mouths. December 20th, O key of David, O clavis Davidica, the scepter of the house of Israel, you open and no one can shut. You shut and no one can open. Come and lead the prisoners from the prison house. And this passage from uh, Isaiah 22 Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 42, uh, either directly or indirectly, reminds us of Matthew 16, 18. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will never prevail against her. What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Thus we have the power of the keys, right? Well, we kind of have a hearkening back here to this O key of David, this O clavis Davidica, the scepter of the house of Israel. You open and no one can shut. You shut and no one can open. You know, the aerial view, Jack, of St. Peter's Basilica Square outside is the shape of a key ring that Bernini's colonnade make. A lot of people don't realize that, but that's, that's hearkening to Matthew 16, 18, right? Then December 21st, we have O morning star, O rising dawn, O Oriens, huh? a splendor of light, eternal and sun of righteousness. That's S-U-N of righteousness, recalling the S-O-N of righteousness, and rightly so. Come and enlighten those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. And then December 22nd, we have O King of the Nations, O Rex Gentium, and their desire, the cornerstone making both one. Come and save the human race, which you have fashioned from clay, recalling the, the, the accounts of creation from the book of Genesis. And December 23rd, O Emmanuel, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O God with us, our King and our lawgiver, the hope of the nations and their Savior. Come and save us, O Lord, our God. 
Again, from the book of Isaiah. Various chapters here from these seven antiphons. We have Isaiah 7, Isaiah 2 and 28, Isaiah 9, uh, Isaiah 9 again, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 11, uh, Isaiah uh, uh, 28. And, and those are the passages, the chapters of, of the book of Isaiah where we receive these titles. So again, worth mentioning too is that in the daily celebration of the Eucharist, Holy Mass, also from December 17th through the December 23rd, uh, the O antiphons are incorporated as the Alleluia verse during the Alleluia sung or recited uh, just before the proclamation of the gospel. So if you go to daily Mass, and you also pray Vespers, you hear the O Antiphon twice that day, not only in the, the sacred liturgy, the source and summit of the entire Christian life, the celebration of the Eucharist, but you also uh, hear them as well in the, in the uh, vest praying of Vespers as the Antiphon before and after the praying of the Canticle of Mary. So there you have it, you know, the, the O Antiphons, their history and their meaning. And remember, Advent is a liturgical season of devout and joyful expectation. It focuses on the two comings of Christ, hence the Mass offers two prefaces, one focusing on the general judgment at the end of time, and one focusing on the Nativity of the Lord. And uh, that second preface uh, begins as well on December 17th. We start hearing a different preface. So the first preface for the Mass, uh, that prayer is from the first Sunday of Advent all the way through December 16th. Why? Because beginning on the 17th, we have a shift of focus from having focused up till that point uh, through the day of December 16th on the second coming of Christ, but now on the 17th we begin to focus with the liturgical shift in the readings and the O antiphons and, and other passages of Scripture on the first coming of Christ. So we can say really that Advent is divided into two periods, from its beginning of the first Sunday of Advent through December 16th, and then from December 17th through the 25th, the celebration of Christmas itself. And this second half of the liturgical season of Advent has us focus on the beautiful nativity of our Lord, and it's the O antiphons that precisely help us to do just that focus. Um, and so we, we love these, these O antiphons. They should ring out in our lives, these beautiful titles of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. Great quote from St. Charles Borromeo that I s shared a, a few weeks back. Beloved, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation, spoken of by the Holy Spirit in Scripture, the day of salvation, the day of the Lord, of peace and of reconciliation. Indeed, this is the great season of Advent. End quote. Great uh, quote from St. Charles Borromeo, the great Council of Trent reformer bishop. He's basically quoting 2 Corinthians 6, 2, when we read, uh, this is the day of salvation, this is the day of the Lord. So a wonderful time of the liturgical year to get back to confession and make a good, holy, reverent confession uh, before the celebration of Christmas. Try to make a good confession during these seven days of the O Antiphons. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You can rely on CNA to cover the most uh, to cover the mission and activities of the Catholic Church, including social, political, moral, and cultural issues from a perspective of faith. 
For the latest Catholic news, visit catholicnewsagency.com. It's an online service from EWTN News, and you can get timely news updates directly to your email inbox. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One open line for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is John in the great state of Oklahoma listening on the EWTN app. John, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you guys for having me on. I have a a question about my marriage, and I was talking to the call screener, and he let me know that... um, not the tribunal, but I had, I did have a quick question of what what I should do and what's going on. So I'm Catholic. I uh, met my wife seven years ago. Um, at that time, I wasn't really practicing my faith. We got married, had an outdoor wedding, not a Catholic wedding. After that, realized I made a big mistake, and I wanted to go back to Mass and start receiving the sacraments. So we needed to get our marriage invalidated. And so she became Catholic, actually, and... Um, Got our marriage invalidated, started going to Mass and receiving the sacraments for a year or two, and then now she's no longer going to Mass. Uh, she uh, it totally rejects everything the Church teaches, rejects um, what she had promised me during the convalidation of our marriage, of raising our kids in the Church, and um, now is not necessarily open to life. She says she might be in the future, but right now she's not. So the whole natural family planning thing is totally out of the window, and um, I really don't know what to do. And I was wondering if you guys could help me um, and guide me in the right direction on how to handle something like this, because she made a promise to me during the consolidation, but also made a promise to the congregation when she came into the church that she believed everything that she's been learning the past nine months in RCIA. And now she's saying she rejects all of it. Well, John, thank you so much for your series of questions, and they're all very, very important ones. And my heart goes out to you and to your wife as a couple married in the Church, a sacramental, covenantal wedding, marriage, sacrament of matrimony received by both of you, who are obviously, for whatever reasons, are are having problems within that same said sacramental marriage. And that's never, never pleasing to hear, huh? So we look to the Church and what the Church teaches in regards to the receiving of the sacraments, and we hope that the parties involved will understand the beautiful sacramental economy of the sacraments and how they work, and that they will want to try to make the marriage work because grace comes through the sacraments, right? Uh, I kind of say that we need the sacraments definitively to receive the grace in our life, the, sac- the sanctifying grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, first of all, you know, the definition of a sacrament. A sacrament is an outward, visible sign instituted by Jesus Christ that effects in the soul, that is, it gives the soul the very particular grace it signifies. So each one of the seven sacraments confers or effects or gives a particular grace to that soul and person's life who receives it, that the other six do not give. 
Okay, so for example, baptism takes away not only original sin, but it also takes away all personal sin, that is to say any actual sin committed or mortal or venial sin committed. The Holy Eucharist, it gives us the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ as our daily spiritual food to nourish our union with him and with others. Confirmation deepens our union with Christ and helps us proclaim our faith in him before others, soldiers of Christ, right? Uh, so those are the three sacraments of initiation, baptism, Holy Eucharist, and confirmation. And notice that each one confers its own particular grace, that the others do not. Now let's move to the two sacraments of healing. We have confession, which restores our union with Christ disrupted by personal sins, that is to say actual sins committed, or mortal or venial sins. That's another way to say actual sins or personal sins. Uh, and the anointing of the sick, it heals and strengthens our union with Christ during times of serious illness. So notice those two sacraments of healing each give their own particular grace that the other one does not. Um, and, and then now when you look at the five total we've covered so far, the three sacraments of initiation and the two sacraments of healing, each one of those five give its, gives its own particular grace that the other four do not. So now let's look at the last two, the two sacraments of vocation and mission, also known as the two sacraments of union. Uh, holy orders, which I partake in through my ordination, it gives a man the power of uniting or reuniting believers with God as a deacon, priest, or bishop. And matrimony, which your series of questions clearly focus on, it makes a man a woman, makes a man and woman husband and wife, and gives them grace to live with God, for God, and each other. This is why Archbishop Fulton Sheen says it takes three to marry. Uh, the bride, the groom, and Jesus Christ, intimately involved in their lives, right? So again, matrimony makes a man and a woman husband and wife, and gives them the grace to live with God, for God, and each other. So all seven sacraments confers or gives or effects, that's with an E, not an A, not affects, but effects. Each of the seven sacraments effects or gives or confers its own particular grace that the other six do not. All right, so your wife, when she entered the church at the time of your convalidation, your wife received those sacraments because she was open to them at the time. So her turning away from them does not, for example, erase the indelible character on her soul that baptism gave her. It does not erase the indelible character that confirmation gave her. Um, she still has those indelible characters. She still has those sacraments. She's just not receiving the sanctifying graces associated with those sacraments. What are the sanctifying graces? I just gave you a, a, a short, curt example of each one when I read through all seven and described in one sentence what it is that sacrament does, what it effects in the person's life. Your wife is blocking all this out from her life, okay? She still has the sacraments, okay, but she's blocking it all out. I have yet to meet a person who turns away from the Catholic Church and their Catholic practice of their Catholic faith because of the sacraments. Rather, they turn away because something else is going on morally in their life, for example, or they're upset with the practicing Catholic loved one in their life, whether it's a spouse or not. They're, they're turned off by that Catholic spouse. Uh, maybe they're practicing the faith too, too, with too much rigidity. And so they turn away from it like a teenager turning away from their Catholic faith because they see the parents practicing it in an unhealthy way, um, or the parents are living it too rigidly. That's why a person usually turns away from their Catholic faith of baptism and confirmations, because something's going on in their life that is immoral, and they don't want to give it up, and they know it conflicts with their faith, 
or they're turned off by the practicing loved one Catholic, the, the loved one who's Catholic, for some other reason. So this is where the marriage counseling comes in. This is where the come to Jesus happens between you and your wife and a good uh, counselor, marriage counselor, who hopefully is a practicing Catholic himself or herself, and who understands this sacramental economy of the Church, right? That's what's important. You want to get a therapist who, who understands what the Church teaches about the seven sacraments and receives them themselves. Themself. Also, maybe spiritual direction from a priest himself in this regard, you know. Uh, I've always said, and, I, and I'll continue to say it, a perfect marriage is an imperfect husband and an imperfect wife who absolutely refuse to give up on one another. Because the main purpose, John, of a sacramental marriage is to help get one another into heaven. And your wife, for whatever reason, and I don't know the reason because I haven't met her in, in, marriage, in a marriage therapy session, she's got her reasons. I, I would want to ask her, when was the last time you went to confession? If it's been over two years or it's been only since your marriage was convalidated, maybe now's the time to go to confession, right? Um, these things are important. We need to keep the sacraments active. And of, out of all seven sacraments, three can only be received once. That's it, once, because of the indelible character or spiritual mark they leave on the soul, never, ever, ever to be erased. Baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. Two more of the sacraments can be received repetitiously, but not frequently. Repetitiously meaning again, but not frequently, not daily. Uh, anointing of the sick, right? And matrimony. So, for example, if your spouse dies, you can remarry. Uh, you can receive the anointing of the sick whenever you begin to be in danger of death because of sickness or old age. So again, with, with matrimony and anointing of the sick, you can receive them repetitiously, meaning again, okay, but it wouldn't be with a lot of frequency. And the last two sacraments can be received both repetitiously and frequently. What are they? Eucharist and confession. Why is that? Well, because these are the two sacraments that sustain us in our vocation and state in life, whether single married or as consecrated priests, brothers or sisters, active, contemplative, it doesn't matter, regardless of your vocation or state in life. Confession and Eucharist are the two sacraments that sustain us in that daily walk. This is why Holy Mother Church, in her wisdom, the Bride of Christ, gives us these two sacraments repetitiously and frequently. Daily, if you want them. You know we have celebration of daily Mass. Now, a scrupulous soul going to confession, running the confessional every single day, that would not be healthy. But that said, Technically speaking, technically speaking, one can receive confession daily. It's a known fact, for example, that Mother Teresa, Saint Mother Teresa, and Saint John the Paul and Saint John Paul II went daily. Was it because uh, I, I'm sorry? Went weekly. They went weekly. Was it because uh, they were scrupulous? I doubt it. I believe they wanted just the the graces of a weekly devotional confession. What's a devotional confession? A devotional confession is a confession where only venial sins are confessed because the person isn't aware of any mortal sins they've committed, and that's a great thing. That's a beautiful thing. Hopefully, one's monthly confession, twelve times a year will be a devotional confession, right? Because there's other ways that venial sins can be forgiven, like the penitential rite at Mass, for example, or making a, a good act of contrition, etc. So there's other ways that venial sins can be forgiven. One of those ways is taking them to confession. Well, if one goes to confession faithfully and regularly once a month, hopefully that monthly confession per se, or in the case of John Paul II and Mother Teresa, that weekly confession per se, is precisely what's keeping them away from committing mortal sin, and that's a beautiful thing. Okay, but this is why we can receive Eucharist and confession both repetitiously and frequently. These two sacraments sustain us in our vocation and state in life, regardless of what that might be. Single, 
or, or widowed, uh, single, uh, married, or as consecrated religious priests, brothers, and sisters, whether diocesan or whether active or, or contemplative with a religious order. Um, so I would recommend, you know, that, that the first thing you and your wife do is say, what, what's wrong here? What, what's, what's causing the crisis of faith in our marriage? With you not wanting the sacraments anymore, do you believe in the Eucharist? And if not, why not? Have you studied the Eucharist? I would try to get a, a good Catholic marriage therapist, again, preferably one who practices the faith, who understands the sacramental economy. So, John, I, I will surely offer my Vespers and my Compline this evening with the Liturgy of the Hours for you and your wife. I, I certainly hope that she can understand the sacramental economy and the beauty of how we need it. My gosh, especially in 2022, with the culture being so, so challenging today. And remember, we Catholics, we love the culture. We have no problem with the culture. We love it so much, we want to sanctify it and make it holy. So we don't run away and become reclusivists. No, not at all. We stay active with the sacraments in our vocation and state in life, whatever, whatever that is, and we give Christ to others. So uh, be a, start with your parish priest, find out if he knows anybody that, that will take on a couple for some Catholic uh, uh, marriage therapy, and maybe even see him for some spiritual direction. God bless you, John. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting is celebrating their 11th year on the air with us this week. They serve Oklahoma with 12 FM sig uh, signals in English and Spanish. Congratulations to our buddy Jeff Fennell and everyone at Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting from your friends here at EWTN. Plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. Next up is Robert in Ann Arbor, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Robert, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Father, i got a question. I know we're taught if we die in a state of grace that there's hope for heaven or purgatory. But what exactly is living—what does state of grace mean? And then would— mortal sin, a single mortal sin, take us out of that state of grace. Yes, that's exactly what a state of grace is. It's not having any mortal sin on your soul and, and having a personal moral certitude that tells you that because of your intellect and your will working in the spiritual life. It is possible to stop at any given point of the day and say to yourself in your inmost heart of hearts, and, and mean it, I mean, whether you're walking into a store, whether you're pumping gas in your vehicle, whether you're going to church and arriving a few minutes early to recollect yourself, it doesn't matter what you're doing, uh, to stop at any given point of the day and say to your inmost heart of hearts and mean it, you know what, to the best of my sincerest of knowledge, I'm not aware of any mortal sin on my soul. And if you can say that, you have the moral certitude that you are in a state of sanctifying grace. Why do I say moral certitude instead of absolute certitude? Because grace is ethereal. You, you, can't, you can't quantify it, so you can't have the absolute certitude. It's not something you can count within you or, or count outside of you. But you can have the moral certitude through your intellect being informed of what the Church teaches, what requires a mortal sin to have 
been uh, committed, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of your will, etc. And if all three of those are present, you have a mortal sin. If, if any one of those is, is missing or absent, you then have a venial sin. So remember, sins are rightly evaluated according to their gravity, right? Uh, the distinction between mortal and venial sin already evident in Scripture, for example, when we're told in 1 John 5, 16 and 17, there is sin that is deadly and sin that is not deadly. So uh, the distinction between mortal and venial sin already evident in sacred Scripture became part of the teaching tradition of the Church, and it is corroborated by human experience, right? Um, there's something uh, clearly different between a seven-year-old who's just entered the age of reason, taking a pack of gum at the checkout line when mommy's not looking while mommy's paying her bill for her items that she's purchasing, uh, as opposed to um, a boyfriend and girlfriend with full, willful intent, knowing what they're doing, knowing it's grave matter, having the fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter, and still committing the abortion. There, there's, so it's corroborated by human experience, right? So grave matter, there's a difference between matter of an abortion versus taking a piece of gum. Taking the piece of gum at the checkout counter when mommy's not looking is still wrong. It's still a sin, but it's not, that doesn't constitute grave matter, okay? So it constitutes non-grave matter. It still shouldn't be done. Okay, so mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of the human person and is a, by, a, by a grave violation of God's law. It turns the human person away from God, who is his ultimate end, and his beatitude that he's called to, the beatific vision, by preferring an inferior good uh, to God himself. Venial sin, on the other hand, still allows the supernatural charity with God and neighbor to exist or subsist in the soul, even though it offends and wounds it and will constrict your practice of virtue, for example. But at the supernatural level, charity is cut off through the committing of a mortal sin. So mortal sin, the Catechism teaches us very clearly, by attacking the vital principle within us, that is charity, necessitates a new initiative uh, of God's mercy and a conversion of, of the human heart, which is normally accomplished within the setting of the sacrament of reconciliation, okay? So I want to encourage you, you know, first of all, to answer your question directly, yes. Uh, when we say our goal is to die in a state of grace, it's to not be aware of any mortal sin on our soul that has not already been sacramentally confessed and forgiven in the sacrament of reconciliation, Okay. The only thing that takes us out of that state of sanctifying grace is a mortal sin. And indeed, as you imply with your question, just one. Because it only takes one mortal sin with all three of those elements present, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and deliberate consent of your will, to uh, cut off that supernatural charity, which requires on, on our part a new initiative working with God to gain that supernatural charity back, because we have purposefully, willfully cut him off. Grave matter done with fullness of knowledge is grave matter, and done with deliberate consent of your will. Uh, what I'd like you to, to do, Robert, is um, go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1854, 1854, all the way through 1864. Okay, it talks about the gravity of mortal sin versus venial sin, what constitutes matter for both. Um, and also it talks about how... Um, uh, Guilt can be lessened in certain circumstances, okay? Guilt can be lessened because the person doesn't have their intellect informed what is objectively a mortal sin. And so when they commit what is objectively a mortal sin, subjectively in them personally, 
it's venial because they didn't have the second element, the fullness of knowledge that it was grave matter. Remember, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of your will. If they didn't have that second element, the fullness of knowledge that it was grave matter, they still committed something that's objectively a mortal sin, but subjectively, and that particular subject, we'll call him Mr. Smith, for example. In Mr. Smith, although he committed an objectively mortal sin, subjectively it was venial. Now, once his intellect is, is informed that it was um, uh, mortal by making a good examination of conscience in a written form, for example, like the Fathers of Mercy written form that we have available at our website, fathersofmercy.com. Uh, the PDF is there for a great examination of conscience. Once the intellect is informed, they should confess it, but tell the priest at the same time, Father, when I committed this, I didn't know it was grave matter, but since I've been informed by making this examination of conscience through this brochure that I found, uh, I want to confess it and lay it before God as he sees it. That's great to do, that type of thing. So, you know, uh, when I talk about the last rites, and it, there are five elements, uh, I, I, I say this, I say, look, the, the last rites, quote-unquote, regards at the time of death the five following things happening. Receiving the anointing of the sick, which is on its own a sacrament. It's one of the two sacraments of healing, and it's one of the seven sacraments of the Church. So the last rites constitute five elements. The anointing of the sick, number one, confession, number two, if the person feels they need it, they may not feel that they need it, okay? Number three, holy viaticum, one's final holy communion, okay? Number four, prayers of commendation for the dying, which includes the litany of the saints being prayed over the dying person by the priest, which is a beautiful, beautiful reality that Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, commands her priest in giving you the last rites, these five elements. Number four is the commendation of prayers for the dying. Part of that prayers of commendation for the dying, is praying the litany of the saints over you. How awesome is that, right? And a lot of Catholics don't realize this. They don't even know to ask for the last rites. And then number five, the apostolic pardon, okay? And then summing these five up, okay, the so-called last rites, anointing of the sick, confession, holy viaticum, prayers of commendation for the dying, and the apostolic pardon. Summing this all up, I add, and of course, and of course, one should strive to die in a state of sanctifying grace, that is to say, with no known mortal sin on one's soul that has not already been sacramentally confessed and forgiven. Okay? Now, I want to end with this. Regarding those five elements of the, of the last rites, the anointing of the sick, even if it's a terrible car accident that puts you in ICU where you're not able to make a confession or you're not able to receive the adicum, of those five, you can still receive the anointing of the sick, provided the ICU people... Let, let the priest in, even if it's to anoint the foot, because that's the only exposed part that there is to anoint, rather than the heads or the, or the hands, because the priest cannot do that because of bandages or whatever. Because normally we anoint the forehead and the, and the hands. If we can't do that, then another part of the body suffices, like the exposed foot in ICU, for example. So they, you can still receive the anointing of the sick. You can't receive the second element, confession, if you felt you did need it, but guess what? In that case, when you're non-auricular, because of all the tubes and everything on you, all the apparatus on you, because you're in ICU following the car accident, guess what? The anointing of the sick doubles as confession. How beautiful is that? And then should the person recover, praise God, and they're once again auricular, they can and should and must uh, make a confession of any known mortal sins that they did not regularly sacramentally confess. But should you die, that's anointing of the sick also doubled as confession for any and all mortal and venial sin that was on your soul at the time you were in the ICU. 
Number three, Holy Viaticum, you may not be able to receive it at all because of all the apparatus and the, the hoses on you and everything else, okay, the breathing apparatus, whatever. But the prayers of commendation of the dying you could still receive, and the apostolic pardon you can still receive. So of those five, two you can't receive in an ICU situation, probably. Um, confession, because you're non-auricular, and Holy Viaticum, because you're not able to take a portion of the host. But guess what? One of those is remedied, confession is remedied by the anointing of the sick. So the worst case scenario is, of those five elements that constitute the quote-unquote last rites, you can still receive all four of them. The only one you couldn't receive was Holy Viaticum in that ICU situation that I describe. So we need to live eternity-minded. This does not mean with morbidity or a morose or macabre kind of way where we're always thinking about death. No, that's not what I mean when I say we're called to live eternity-minded. I mean we're called to live to want to shun mortal sin. We want to live in such a way that we're shunning mortal sin and shunning venial sin. But because we're not immaculately conceived, we're still going to sin. But the good news is we get up and we make a good confession, or if it's only venial sin, we get up, and we really take part in that penitential rite at Mass, at the beginning of Mass, that wipes away that venial sin, or we partake in any good works, like the 14 works of mercy, or the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and we do those works with the intent of having our venial sins forgiven, not for the works themselves, that means nothing, but for the charity they help prosper between you and your fellow human being, your, you and your fellow human person. That's why the works are important, okay? So we need to live eternity-minded with joyfulness and wanting to share this good news with others. Does that help you out, Robert, with your question and as an answer? Father, it does. Just one comment. I want to thank you for that follow-up regarding the, the last rites, because it, it happened in my family two weeks ago where I had a, a relative in ICU unconscious. And we asked a priest to come and anoint him. He did, and he died six hours later. He was unconscious. That's exactly what I was thinking. Robert, let me add this, too. You know, I know when I walk in a hospital room or into a home where the dying person is in the bed dying, and they're surrounded by loved ones, okay, I can tell pretty instantly, and I think most priests can, if those loved ones standing around the bed, if they practice the faith or not— if they practice their Catholic faith or not, this is provided if they're technically Catholic through baptism and First Communion, okay? But as adults, they may not be practicing now. I can usually tell instantly whether the loved ones standing around the, the bed of the dying person are practicing Catholics or not. How? By how they receive the Roman collar and the violet stole when it walks in the room to give their loved ones the last rites. Hey, Father, come on in, Father, we've been waiting for you. And the whole family's joyful. Father, we were just going to start the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Would you mind leading us in it? Or, or the rosary, would you mind leading us in it? Or at least join in with us? You know they're all practicing Catholics because of the joy, the absolute joy that's in that hospital room or that's in that family bedroom where the families all gathered around the dying loved one. But if I walk in and the looks I get are like, what in the blank are you doing here? Get out. Because they're hurting inside. They're hurting because they know their loved one is dying. And see, to see the Roman collar and the violet stole is a sign of the imminent end. And they want nothing to do with the priest, these loved ones standing around the bed. And it's very, very unfortunate because it tells you something how they view death, number one. They don't live eternity-minded. And come their own death they're not prepared to ask for the last rites, and, and it's a very sad situation, and the devil loves it. But the ones who understand the teaching of the Church, and who love and practice their Catholic faith, and they receive 
Holy Communion regularly in their life at their Sunday Mass. They receive a good holy monthly confession, and they partake of the sacraments, and they go on their annual marriage retreat and their annual priest retreat, and if they're a priest, and whatever else, and they live their confirmation. They're evangelizers. They share examinations of conscience with other fallen-away Catholics to bring them back to practicing their faith. These kind of Catholics are thrilled when the priest walks in to give the last rites, these five elements of the last rites to their dying loved ones. But the ones who don't practice the faith, they're virtually horrified that the priest has walked in, which makes our job more difficult, because then you have to explain everything to them, and you have to placate them, and even then, you might still have a relative that says, get out, we don't want you. And the devil absolutely loves that kind of situation. Does that make sense, Robert, how important it is? As a, I'm asking you this as a layman. I presume you're a layman. Does that make sense to you how important it is for the family, clan-wise, extended family-wise is what I mean, how important it is for the extended family to practice and love their faith on a continuum and to live eternity-minded? Well, Father, you, you, you have no idea what it's done to my day, and I, I thank you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. And share this podcast, this portion of the podcast of the Full Hour Show with your loved ones. Say, Say, you know, I called into a show because I, something I was hurting about, and I wanted clarity on it, and the priest who's the host of the show gave me clarity on it, and I feel like evangelizing my, you, my relatives and friends who are Catholic, don't, don't say active or non-active, or non-active, just say, and I feel like sharing this with you, my relatives and loved ones, because I care about your salvation as we draw closer to the great celebration of Christmas. I love your salvation. I love you, and I want to one day enjoy eternity with you. Please go and listen to the podcast, if not the full show, the full our show, listen to point such and such to point such and such, and give them the, the two bookends of the counter of your call, uh, Robert. Give them the counter, beginning in the counter end of, of the YouTube feed, and let them listen to this. And, and God willing, you never know how God can touch a heart and soul by your evangelization. You live your confirmation now, your soldier of Christ, by giving the faith to others by doing something like that. And check out the Fathers of Mercy uh, examination of conscience found at fathersofmercy.com. All you got to do is, when, once you get to the homepage, scroll down a little bit. You don't even have to type anything in the search bar. Once you pull up the homepage, fathersofmercy.com, and hit enter, that's the homepage that first comes up. Scroll down a little bit, and you'll see both the English and the Spanish PDF of that document, what we call our Examination of Conscience and Catholic Doctrine brochure for adults and teens. It's meant for 13 years of age and older. And there it is, to make a good, holy, monthly confession 12 times a year, especially during the great Christmas countdown now as we approach December 17th to the 25th, the nine-day novena period. What a great, awesome time to go to confession. Thank you, Robert, so much for your call today from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Be sure to join us for Advent Reflections Sunday night, 4 and 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. There's one Sunday left in Advent, so join us for our series uh, on the readings of the four Sundays of Advent. That's this Sunday, 4 and 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. Next up is Kathy in the great state of North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Kathy, you're on with Father Wade. Hello. I have a question about devotional confession. I heard you reference it, Father, in the second previous caller this afternoon mm-hmm. of, of devotional confession. Right. Sure, Kathy. A, now, a devo- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm not aware of any mortal sins on my soul. Praise I God. want to make my Advent confession. Do I need to 
tell the pastor when I enter the confessional that this is a devotional confession that I have no mortal sins to confess? Or sure. How do you recommend I do it? Let's say your last confession was two months ago, Kathy. You would begin by simply saying, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was two months ago. Father, praise God by His grace. I'm not aware of any mortal sins, so what I'm about to confess now are just venial, so I'm here mostly for the devotional sake of the sacrament, to receive graces from this particular confession. But it's it's a devotional confession, because I'm not aware of any mortal sins. That's all you have to say. He's already going to know that. He's going to know it's devotional by the fact that you say, Praise God, Father, but I'm not aware of any mortal sins, so what I'm about to confess now from this last two-month period is just venial sins. He's going to know just by you saying that, that it's a devotional confession. So you don't even have to say the word devotional, quote, end quote. He's going to know that. Just simply say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was two months ago. By the grace of God, Father, I'm not aware of any mortal sins, so what I'm about to confess now are just venial sins. And then you make that simple confession. Remember, mortal sins need kind and approximate number, where venial sins, you only need to mention kind. You don't even need to give the approximate number. You're welcome to give it if you want, but you don't have to. But mortal sins need both kind and approximate number. Great question, uh, Kathy, for clarity, and thank you for your call today from beautiful North Dakota. Get ready for your winter now. Next stop is Lafayette, Louisiana. Jack is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jack, you're on with Father Wade Menezes. Good afternoon, Father Wade. How are you, sir? Good, Jack. We just took a call from the upper part of North Dakota. Now we're taking one from the southern part of Louisiana. Yep, you got to respect the compass. That's all I can tell you, man. <laughs> That's right. Um, by the way, if you don't mind me asking, are, are, are the Fathers of Mercy going to be coming down to uh, Louisiana uh, like during Advent or Lent that you know of? <laughs> You know, we do post all of our mission activities, whether they're day-long conferences, weekend retreats, or full three-, four-, or five-night parish missions. We post everything at our website. So just go to fathersofmercy.com, and you'll see all the towns and, and cities, town cities and states listed of where we're going to be at. And if, if it's a parish, if it's a parish location, it states exactly the, the, what parish it is. If it's an event like at a hotel, like a Catholic family conference, uh, over the course of a weekend, it gives you the link of the organization that's hosting it, and it'll tell you what hotel and how to register for it and everything else. So, you know, we don't just do parish missions, we do a whole variety of events, but you can find everything at fathersofmercy.com where our missionary schedule is listed. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Father. Well, look, this is my question. Uh, a while back, I went to confession, and the priest, and I'm not going to say who it was or where it, or where the church was, is rather, but um, the priest was reading a book, and um, he told me what, he gave me my penance, and he told me to go into the church and say my act of contrition, and he said the words of absolution, but did not make the sign of the cross. He just kept on uh, reading his book. My question is, is that a valid absolution? Yes, it sounds like the—now, I'm going off on how you described it. He did give you the words of absolution, which includes the I absolve you, quote-in-quote, the absolvelte in Latin. If he included that, it's valid. Uh, 
but illicit, meaning it was against the law, but it was valid. You don't need to reconfess any mortal sins that might have been confessed in that confessional, uh, and you shouldn't, because it can lead to scrupulosity. It is valid, but illicit on his part. Illicit is a fancy word simply meaning against the law. In this case, against the rubrics, because the rubrics do ask him to ask you to say your act of contrition while you're still in the confessional. The rubrics also ask him to extend his right, to extend his hands, and then it says, at least the right hand, while giving you the words of absolution. You told me he continued holding this book, so he did not extend his hands, nor at least his right hand, as the rubric, the law states, nor did he have you do your act of contrition while still in the confessional, once you were done confessing your sins. The rubrics, the law, asked for that. So he was against the law in those two things, but because he gave you the words of absolution, it is a valid confession. And you can fulfill the act of contrition after the fact by going out in the church and praying the act of contrition along with the penance he gave you. So to answer your direct question, yes, it was valid. I'm going on that answer now by the way you describe the situation. Does that help you out? The, you, every sacrament has validity and lyseity meaning it's licit, it's done according to the law. Every sacrament has validity and lyseity, and but a sacrament thus can also be valid, but illicit, meaning done against what the rubrics call for. But as long as the bare minimum was there, and for confession, the bare minimum is the priest articulating absolvite in, in, in the English, I absolve you, I absolve you. As long as he said those words, those bare words, it is valid. Does that help you out, Jack? It does, and I do appreciate your clarification, my friend. You're welcome. God bless you now. Take care. Next up is Ann, a first-time caller in West Central Ohio, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ann, just a couple minutes left with Father Wade. What's your question today? I will make it quick. Father, I am a Catholic chaplain, a professional chaplain in a Catholic hospital. We anoint our Catholic patients as soon as they're admitted. We have a priest on staff plus community priests who help with that. Sometimes, uh, because I work nights, I have a patient who is going to pass away before we could get a priest there to provide the additional rites. I do pray the prayer of prayers of commendation, including the litany, try to get the uh, chapel of divine mercy in when we can. What I'm wondering is if I should also offer a spiritual communion on behalf of a patient who is not able to receive the Eucharist by mouth. Uh, and why aren't they able to receive by mouth? Because they simply can't medically, uh, health-wise, or they can't because they know they're in a state of mortal sin? Because they're dying. Okay, because they're dying. I'm talking about it, a patient who is actually in the process of dying and can't receive okay, it by mouth anymore. In that case, I would call, regardless of what hour of day it is, I would call the priest to come administer the last rites. It sounds like they receive the sacrament of the anointing, which is one of the five elements of the last rites, uh, when they were admitted to the hospital, you stated. But now that they're actually in the process, quote-unquote, of dying... I would call the priest out to administer the last rites, which includes the anointing of the sick and those four other elements. Uh, remember, every parish has an emergency phone line where you can at least leave a message to have the priest come in, and the priest can still anoint the body even if after the person has died. The priest can administer the last rites after the person has died. Um, if the body is still warm. So as soon as you know, because of your weekly visits as a chaplain, or daily visits, however often you go, um, you, you know when they're approaching death. Maybe hospice has informed you when they're approaching death. You get on the phone with the priest and call him to come give the last rites, the full five elements. Does that help you out? 
Well, uh, yeah, we, we do have the priests that we, we call them, uh, but sometimes there just isn't time. Our patients find really quickly. Yes, then I would, I would pray. The spiritual communion on their behalf, you're doing piously on your part. So is the chaplet, the chaplet of divine mercy, but it does not equal the, out, the importance of the last rites. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and social media maven Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. God bless. 